0: I would ask that you turn with me this morning to the book of Ruth, chapter 2. Ruth, chapter 2. Indeed, what a Savior we serve, what a Savior we worship. It is our great joy and our privilege to do so this morning as we consider His great kindness demonstrated to us in many marvelous ways. Ruth, chapter 2. We'll begin reading in verse 14, and I would ask this morning that if you are able, that you stand with me in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Ruth chapter 2, beginning in verse 14, there we read, Now Boaz said to her at mealtime, Come here, and eat of the bread, and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed parched grain to her. And she ate, and was satisfied, and kept some back. And when she rose up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. Also let grain from the bundles fall purposely for her. Leave it that she may glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening, and beat out what she had gleaned. And it was about an ephah of barley. Then she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she brought out and gave to her what she had kept back after she had been satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where have you gleaned today, and where did you work? Blessed be the one who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked, and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, Blessed be he of the Lord who has not forsaken his kindness to the living and the dead. And Naomi said to her, This man is a relation of ours, one of our close relatives. Ruth, the Moabitess, said, He also said to me, You shall stay close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter that you should go out with his young women, and that people do not meet you in any other field. So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of the barley harvest and wheat harvest, and she dwelt with her mother-in-law. You may be seated. And let's once again turn to the Lord in prayer this morning. Oh God, we marvel this morning at your goodness and your love for us it is indeed a mystery as we have already sung that you would send your blessed and glorious son to redeem us from the depths of our ruin and sin and despair you have given us all things together with christ And so, Lord, we come here together this morning to contemplate your loving kindness and to worship you accordingly. I pray now as we turn to your word, as we examine the way that your loving kindness was manifested toward Ruth and toward Naomi, that we would take heart if we find ourselves in similar circumstances, if we find despair knocking at our door we find hunger and poverty, loneliness and worry to be constant companions. I pray that we would rest this morning, Lord, under the shadow of your wings because we can take confidence knowing that you, O Lord, are kind. I pray likewise that you would help us to be kind as you are kind. Help us to demonstrate your love to one another in the way you have called us to do as your people Lord help us to emulate Christ even as you are making us more and more like Christ with every passing day and I pray Lord that if there are those here that do not know Christ that have not trusted in your great loving kindness demonstrated to us through the work of Christ on the cross that as your word is taught that it would burn in their hearts, they would be compelled to repent of their sin and trust you, O Lord. Give us understanding now. Lord, help us to see you in your word clearly displayed. And may we come away from it all the more dependent upon you. It's in Christ's name that we pray this morning. The second chapter of Ruth that we find ourselves in this morning is a remarkable testimony to the goodness of God. It is wonderful to read because as we progress through the book, as we progress through this chapter, we, the reader, know something that the characters in the story do not initially know. We know something from the outset. We know a bit of what's going on, especially if we're coming to this book a second time or a third time. We, we are aware of where all this is going. And it's remarkable because Ruth, Naomi, even Boaz is oblivious to the plan of the Lord that we, the reader, are privy to. We know that God has not forgotten his people. And that he is sovereignly accomplishing his purposes in their life for their good and for the good of the entire nation. Our delight is getting to watch that realization begin to dawn on these characters as the Lord's plan unfolds. It's like remembering something that you had once forgotten. A sweet memory from childhood that comes rushing back upon you suddenly. Awakening a joy that you didn't think could be recovered. These memories are all the sweeter when they comfort us at the end of a wearisome ordeal. They're like a drink of cool water on a hot day. Refreshing our soul. That is what Naomi and Ruth begin to experience here in the second chapter of Ruth. Naomi has already declared herself to be bitter. Barren. All her hope for the future of her family had been extinguished with the death of her husband and the death of her sons. But now something is stirring inside Naomi. When we get to this part of the story, we see that hope is waking back up inside of her. We witness it growing, taking root deep in her heart. This remembrance that the Lord is kind, He meets the needs of the living, and the dead are not forgotten. There are some of us here this morning that need to remember these truths. There are some of us, like Naomi at the end of the first chapter, that might characterize our lives at this point in time as bitter, as wearisome, as empty. We might wonder, be wondering even now, where is the Lord? Where is this great Savior that we just sang about? The mystery that we sang of a few minutes ago is why are we going through this ordeal? We may be blinded by our bitterness, our emptiness. We may be wondering what the Lord is doing in our lives and we need to remember a truth that we once knew that the Lord is kind, that the Lord is loving to his people. Even if we have not experienced the same suffering that Naomi has, if we have not lost spouse and children, even if we fear that others might find our particular trials to be trivial if we were to share them, we find ourselves nonetheless burdened and anxious, weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care, as the hymn says. And even if we do not find ourselves in that position, if we do not find ourselves bitter and empty, even if you are today as carefree as a child in its mother's arms, we still need to remember these truths. We need to bury these truths deep in our heart so that when trouble does come, and it will come, we can remember and rest in the truth that the Lord is kind, He meets the needs of the living, and the dead are not forgotten. So the first thing we see in this passage, the Lord is kind. Scripture emphasizes the kindness of the Lord over and over and over again. The word that Naomi uses here that we just read a moment ago in verse 20, it's translated as kindness here. The Hebrew word is chesed. This word is used over 200 times in the Old Testament to describe the kindness of our God. It's often translated as loving kindness, especially in the Psalms. Although any English translation of this word falls far short of its intended meaning. This word has a richness and depth that is hard for us to grasp. Because in this one Hebrew word, there's all these ideas that are contained within it. Covenant loyalty might be another way of saying it. That the Lord is is loyal to his people because he has made a covenant with them. There's the idea of mercy, of steadfastness, of a persistent kindness, one that does not ever wear out or get tired. There's goodness, there's love, and of course there is kindness. All of these ideas are contained within this one word, the chesed of God. The Old Old Testament is one continual story of the Lord's chesed, his His loving kindness toward His people. His people who time and time again broke His law. Who disobeyed the covenant that they had made with the Lord. They worshipped other gods. They ignored the Lord and at times even forgot His law existed. There's a story in the Old Testament where the law is actually found as they're renovating the temple. And the people are surprised, oh this is what we're supposed to be doing. This is what the Lord expects of his people. And the king repents and he tears his robes because they didn't even know what the Lord had told them to do. They had so neglected the word of the Lord. Yet the Lord continues to remain steadfast, to remain loyal, to remain kind to his people. That's what this word means. He loves his people without fail. The Psalms reportedly, or repeatedly extol the great chesed of the Lord. Listen to these passages here. Psalm 36, verses 7 and 8. How precious is your loving kindness, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of your wings. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house. And you give them drink from the river of your pleasures." It is because of the Lord's covenant, faithful, loving kindness that we can trust in Him. Notice what the psalmist says, it's because of your loving kindness, we can put our trust under the shadow of your wings. If the Lord did not possess this, if the Lord was not kind in this way, we would have no reason to trust Him. If the Lord didn't keep His word, if He cast off His people when they disobeyed Him, what hope could we have? The Lord is kind and so therefore He is trustworthy. And by trusting in Him, we will be abundantly satisfied. And we will drink from the river of His pleasures. Psalm 40 verse 11 says, Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. That's how we are sustained, how we are preserved, even in the midst of trial, by the loving kindness of the Lord and by His truth that is contained in His Word. Psalm 48 verses 9 and 10 says, We have thought, O God, on your loving kindness in the midst of your temple. According to your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. May this be our goal on this Lord's day, to think on the loving kindness of the Lord in the midst of our place of worship. As we, as we meditate on the goodness of God, His loving kindness that's demonstrated toward His people. Again, in Psalm 63, verses 2 and 4, it says, So I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Thus, I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. Is this the resolve of our hearts this morning? Because your loving kindness is better than life, O God, my lips shall praise you. That is why we sing. That's why we come together as a body of believers and we lift our voices to the Lord in praise and adoration because His loving kindness, His steadfast love poured out on us is better than life. Because it extends, as we will see at the end of this passage, beyond life. It persists. It follows us. The Lord's loving kindness follows us even to the grave. Even in death, the Lord continues to demonstrate His loving kindness to His people. May we realize the great kindness of the Lord that's manifested to us. May we praise Him this morning, this afternoon... All through the week and all the days of our lives, because of his great loving kindness. May we praise him just as Naomi does, when she remembers, when she recalls the Lord's loving kindness. But you see, it's not just the Lord that is kind. Of course, the scriptures are full of manifestations of the kindness of the Lord, but We also see that those who love the Lord are also to be kind. In fact, most of the time the Lord chooses to demonstrate his kindness through the ordinary means of the day-to-day interactions of his people. The Lord doesn't just magically manifest a meal for someone in need. It doesn't materialize on their table before them. No, he sends it through the hands of his servants in a casserole dish. We see the ordinary means of the Lord's kindness demonstrated here by Boaz toward Ruth and Naomi. Notice how his kindness is displayed at first through a meal. He invites Ruth to his table. He says, come and eat. Come and eat with me. Provides food for her. It's a simple workday meal. But it means the world to Ruth because she too is empty. She had no hope of being filled, of being satisfied. And what does Boaz do? He, he not only satisfies her hunger, but he gives her more than she could possibly eat. So much that she has to take some back home to her mother-in-law. She has no right to sit here among his reapers. She was a woman, a foreigner, an immigrant, an impoverished woman and widowed. Yet Boaz provides her with far more than she needs In the simplicity of a meal, he shows her the kindness of the Lord. God had already told his people that this was to be the standard. He told them six times in the book of Leviticus. He says, you are to be holy because I am holy. That which God is, we are to emulate. It says in Leviticus, you are to emulate my holiness. His holiness refers to the fact that God is separated. He is distinct. He is unique in all the universe from all of His creation. He is above all things. He is before all things. He is preeminent. He is holy in His love. He is unique from all things in the way that He loves, in His righteousness, in His goodness, in His kindness. And He says we are to be like Him. Hmm. Easy enough, right? But you see, we are in no way exempted from this because even though it's contained in the book of Leviticus, Peter refers to this as well. In first Peter chapter one, verses fifteen and sixteen he says, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. So what's included in this instruction that Peter gives to us? All of our conduct. Everything everything we do. Does that include our interactions with one another? You bet. Even that person that we really don't like who said that mean thing to us? Yep. All your conduct. So the standard for all God's people is that we are to be like Him. Holy as He is holy. If He is kind, we are likewise to be kind. Again, simple enough, right? Just be like God. How can we do that? Well, that was the same problem that Israel faced when they were given the same instruction. Be holy as I am holy. Okay, God, we can't even get from Egypt to Israel without messing that one up. We can't even get out of Egypt without messing that one up. So how can we be holy? How can we be kind as God is kind? Well, fortunately... God is working in us to produce the type of holiness, the type of kindness that he expects from us. This is the blessed process of sanctification, by which we are made to look like Christ. Well, how does this work? In Romans 8:28 and 29, Paul tells us, "And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose." For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. If you are in Christ, you are undergoing a transformation in your day-to-day life. You're undergoing a metamorphosis. Because God has decreed that his people are going to look like, act like, and be like Jesus. That's what we're transforming into. That's what we are to be. So how does he do this? Well, he does it through what? Through all things. We know that all things work together for good. Not just good in a general sense, in a general happiness sense, but that good is defined as being conformed to the image of Christ. So if you are in Christ, everything in your life is working together to make you look like Jesus, in this case, making you kind. Now, you may not always respond kindly to someone when they cut you off in traffic, when you log on to Facebook, when your employee fails to show up to work, when your child throws a temper tantrum in Kroger, when your spouse abandons you when that person that's sitting across the aisle from you says something insensitive, guess what? When we reflect on that, when we reflect on what was done, when we reflect on how we responded, and we then repent, which we should do when we realize that we have missed the standard that God has set for us, then the needle moves a little bit closer to Jesus through the repeated practice of striving in our sanctification to emulate Christ and repent when we do not. But we're not just left to our own devices here to become more kind, no. Paul also tells us in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, that kindness is part of the fruit of the Spirit. He says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, longsuffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Note now and understand something important about the fruit of the spirit. These aren't fruits. You can't just say, well, I'll be faithful as if faithfulness is an apple and I'll skip out on the kindness as if kindness is a banana. I don't care much for bananas myself. And if that was the option, I'd probably leave it be as well. No, it's, it's not just a, a, a hodgepodge here. It's not a medley or a fruit cocktail. No, this is one fruit. This is the fruit that the Spirit produces in the believer's life. And kindness is a part of that. Therefore, we can say that the people of God are kind. Not that they should be kind, but they will be kind. If you've been a believer for 20 years, and you're no more kind today than you were the day that you went under the water, it would seem that the Spirit isn't growing any fruit in your life it would seem that you aren't being conformed to the image of Christ. And so what would that mean? I'll let you work out the implications, but it's not good. God not only demands that we be kind, you see, but He actually takes the initiative to make us kind, like He is. So that when the day comes, when we are presented with a situation like Boaz is here, we can respond as Boaz does in Ruth 2, with extraordinary kindness when the opportunity presents itself. But how is this kindness actually manifested? So the Lord is kind and his people, by extension, are also to be kind. How is it manifested, though? The Lord shows his kindness here, as Naomi exclaims, in two different ways. One is obvious, the other is a bit more subtle. First, as Naomi says in verse 20, the Lord provides for the living. After Ruth's interaction with Boaz and after his careful instructions to his laborers, we're told that Ruth works out the rest of the day and that she gathers about an ephah of grain. Now, this probably doesn't mean much to you. We don't go down to Kroger and pick up an ephah of barley whenever we need to make some bread, Right? Um, as a matter of fact, if you were going to do that, if you wanted an EFA of barley, you might be better off going to Sam's Club or Costco or something like that because an EFA is a lot. An EFA measures out to be about 30 pounds of grain. Now we begin to start to see Naomi's amazement, her wonder, when Ruth comes home and she says, Who took notice of you today? This is remarkable. She was hoping maybe to to come home with a few handfuls of grain so she could make some bread. That's what might be entitled to a widow who would go into the field and and glean behind the reapers. He comes home with a sack full, lugging it behind her. This is a miraculous manifestation of God's grace and His kindness in providing, in meeting the needs of a living and making sure that these two destitute widowed women are going to be taken care of. This is unbelievable. But we need to remember the Lord is kind, the Lord is extravagant in his grace that he has poured out and manifested toward us. Behold the wondrous mystery. It is a mystery and it is wondrous that the Lord would be so good and so kind to his people who do not deserve it. These women, just earlier this same morning, they did not know how they were going to live. They didn't know how they were going to eat. And they have just had their prospects dramatically changed for the better. (coughs) Ruth had left home that morning empty. Now she was full. And not only was she full, she was running over. You see, this is the exact opposite of what Naomi had declared at the end of the first chapter. Naomi had declared that she had went away full and she had come back empty. But the Lord is showing, no, no, no. You're not empty because I'm not done displaying my kindness to you yet. You will be full. And so Ruth goes away empty and she comes home full. Our problem today is that we doubt that the Lord will make the same provision for us. Even though He promises that He will do just that. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Beginning in verse 25, a familiar passage here. These are the words of Christ. Which of you by worrying can add one cubit to his stature? I would have done that a long time ago if I could. He says, so why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Now if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more "'Clothe you, O you of little faith. "'Therefore do not worry, saying, "'What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, "'or what shall we wear? "'For after all these things the Gentiles seek. "'For your heavenly Father knows "'that you need all these things. "'But seek first the kingdom of God "'and His righteousness, "'and all these things shall be added to you. "'Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, "'for tomorrow will worry about its own things.' Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. If Jesus were with us during our most anxious moments, during all the hand-wringing, all the worry, when we're short on a bill, when we're worrying about whether or not we'll have food on the table for our children, would He say to us, Oh, you have little faith, why are you worrying about this? Don't you believe that my Father... We'll take care of you. See, I think the problem for most of us is that we're too often worrying about the things that we want rather than the things that we need. We have all that we need. And so it's hard for us to actually trust and depend on the Lord to provide those things because they are abundantly at hand. And so instead, we turn our attention to the things that we want and say, oh, if only I could have this, if only I could make these payments. Jesus says we should be worried first and primarily about the kingdom of heaven. He says these other things, the things that you truly need, I'll take care of. You don't have to worry about those things. Follow me, seek my kingdom, and these things will take care of themselves. We live in a stressed out society though. If I were to go around and ask I won't, but all of us would surely say, oh yeah, we're stressed out about this or about that, about family, about the house, about job, whatever it may be. We're, we're all stressed out about something nowadays and we need to understand the Lord says, I will meet your needs. You don't have to worry. And again, more often than not, we're not worrying about things that we need. We're worrying about things that we want, extraneous things. The Lord provides for the living. We can have confidence in that. And more often than not, he does so through the community of believers, just as he met the needs of Naomi and Ruth through Boaz. So let me just encourage you this morning. If you are struggling and you don't know how you're going to make it through the week with whatever it is, maybe Your marriage is falling apart. Maybe you've lost your job or you're about to. Maybe your paycheck has run out before the bills have. Talk to someone in this room. Ask someone in this room for help. Don't be proud. You see, we need each other, some in different ways and at different times. But God didn't make us, He didn't redeem us and place us together in a family of believers, just so we could grit our teeth and get through it, just so we could pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. He did all that so that we could each thrive by sharing with and edifying one another. That's the pattern that we see in the early church. They had all things in common. They they shared with one another. They made sure that no one had a need that went unmet. We're gathered here together as a family. As a body of believers that have pledged ourselves to one another, lean on one another. Do not suffer alone. Allow someone in this room to put their sanctification into practice by sharing your burden with them. And if they can't help you, well then ask them to find someone who can. Now some of you may be on the other end of this. Like Boaz, you are ready and able to demonstrate the kindness of the Lord. You don't necessarily have to wait till someone asks. If you see a need, go and meet it. Demonstrate the kindness of the Lord by meeting the needs of the living. That's how the Lord demonstrates His kindness through us. Through the ordinary, typical, day-to-day means of our interactions with one another. That's what he does for Ruth and Naomi here. He, he sends Ruth into the field of someone who can help. And because Boaz knows the Lord, his heart is compelled to demonstrate kindness toward her. But that's not the only way that the Lord demonstrates his kindness. You see, not only does he meet the needs of the living, but he also does not forget the dead. Now why would Naomi say that the Lord had not forgotten his kindness to the dead? Surely Elimelech and his sons buried somewhere over in Moab would have no need of 30 pounds of barley. What are they going to do with it? So how is this a manifestation of the kindness of the Lord to them? Well, Naomi's going to explain it for us. She tells Ruth that Boaz is a close relative of theirs. But once again, the weight of the translation is a bit lost in the English. Because what Naomi actually says to Ruth is that Boaz is their kinsman redeemer. A redeemer in Israel had many important roles in the family. They would be primarily responsible for the economic well-being of the family. If somebody in the family, because of their poverty, had had to sell themselves into slavery well, then the kinsman redeemer, their job would be to go and redeem them, to buy them out of slavery. If someone in the family was injured or killed, then the kinsman redeemer would serve as the avenger of blood to go and chase down the killer and make sure that justice was done. And in a case where a man died with no heir, the law of Leverite marriage dictated that his brother should take his sister-in-law as a wife in order to produce an heir for the deceased brother. Now this may seem odd to us, but it ensured that the hereditary property never passed out of the clan in Israel that it was assigned to. We need to understand how significant the land was, the promised land, the land that God himself had given to his people and had promised them for a possession forever. It was not to pass out of the family. And by having this kinsman redeemer who would raise up an heir in the family, that process would continue if someone died without a son, without an heir. And so as soon as Naomi hears Boaz's name, well, the wheels in her mind start turning. She starts scheming as any good mother-in-law would, right? She, she, She starts thinking because she's starting to see it. She's starting to see the sovereign plan of the Lord unfold. And so whereas before there had been no hope, now there's hope. Now there's someone who can step in and alleviate their suffering. Now there's someone who can redeem them. She realizes that the Lord has not forgotten her husband and sons, even though they are dead This notion of a redeemer is an important one and it will be our primary focus throughout the rest of the book of Ruth. However, we need to marinate on this remarkable truth for just a little bit this morning. That the Lord demonstrates his covenant faithful love even to the dead. So that when the Lord's people die, they are not forsaken, they are not forgotten. In fact, they yet live. In Israel, this was demonstrated through the work of a redeemer. Ensuring that the family name carried on. But of course, as you can imagine, this was an imperfect system. What if the widow was too old? What if she was barren? What if there wasn't a redeemer handy? The system was far from foolproof. In fact, this system was used, you may remember, by the Sadducees. In the New Testament, to, to try to test Jesus and try to question this ridiculous notion of resurrection that Jesus and the Pharisees seem to believe in. And so turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. The, the Pharisees, come, or, or pardon me, the Sadducees, come before Jesus, and they ask Jesus about this process of levirate marriage. What happens? Jesus and the resurrection, if this woman has been married? To seven brothers, even. What happens? to their name, to their heritage. In Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 23, we see this test put to Jesus. It says, The same day the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses said that if a man dies having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were with us seven brothers. The first died after he had married, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. Likewise, the second also, and the third, even to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had her. Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. Now, he he could have just stopped there and he would have answered their question. Right? Whose wife will she be? Well, she won't be anybody's wife. There's no marriage in heaven, there's no husband and wife, those things. The, The question's answered, but he goes on because he's not done yet. He says, But concerning the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? God is not the God of the dead but of the living. And when the multitudes heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. You see, the Sadducees were concerned with the system and the implications that that, that, that might have in heaven if the resurrection is true. But Jesus says, no, you don't even understand the scriptures. You see, the system, the system of Leverite marriage, the kinsman, redeemer, all those things are temporary. But they're meant to point us to an eternal truth. Jesus says, you're missing the whole picture here. The temporary picture is giving way to the eternal reality. A man's name is not carried on through his offspring. Or in passing down land from one generation to another. But through the ultimate work of redemption that is provided by Christ. You see, because our ultimate need is not to be rescued from poverty, but to be rescued from death and hell, to be rescued from our sin that entangles us, enslaves us, and condemns us. And that's what Jesus has come to redeem us from. Jesus silences the Sadducees by reminding them that God himself had said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He'd said that long after these men had died. God himself indicates that he is presently their God. Not that he was their God. I am their God. Why can he say, I am their God? Because they yet live. Jesus says he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. There is life after death there is an eternity waiting for us after these few short years of our sojourning cs lewis says you will never meet a mere mortal everyone sitting in this room the person sitting beside you they are immortal and they will live forever the person you may order your food from this afternoon when you go to lunch they are immortal will live forever forever In either heaven or hell. You see, those that die in Christ, they will not truly die. They will live forevermore. Naomi got excited because the Lord had provided for her and Ruth 30 pounds of barley. What a remarkable, miraculous gift of God's great kindness. And now she's hoping that He will provide an heir. For her husband and sons. To redeem them out of poverty. To extend their line. To perpetuate their name. But little did Naomi know. That he's going to provide so much more for them through that heir. Do not be so caught up in your day to day needs. That you miss what the Lord is truly offering you. He is offering you life. Eternal life life the forgiveness of your sins the righteousness of his son and he will make you a joint heir of his everlasting dominion that is what the redemption of the lord provides for us do you know the loving kindness of the lord he will meet your day-to-day needs yes he promises to do that but that is small potatoes He'll meet your eternal need as well. Though your sins be as scarlet, He will make them whiter than snow. If you will but throw yourself upon His great loving kindness, demonstrated to us through Christ, redeeming us from the shame, bondage, and ruin of sin. The Lord is kind. Will you trust Him? Let's pray. Lord, this morning we come before you grateful that you would take notice of us, that you would demonstrate your remarkable, miraculous kindness to us, a people who have no claim to it. Lord, we are foreigners excluded from your table with no right to draw near and yet you welcome us with open arms pouring out your great love and mercy lavishly upon us lord indeed it is only because your loving kindness because of your loving kindness that we can trust in you that we can take refuge under the shadow of your wings lord i pray that you would help us to do so Help us to see that there is no other shelter, there is no other safe haven where we can find rest and comfort and peace. Lord, as we trust, help us to be kind as you are kind. Conform us to the image of Christ through things we experience on a day-to-day basis so that we might demonstrate the same kindness that you have demonstrated to us in small measure to those around us. Give us new opportunities each day. Lord, to manifest such kindness. And by that, may people know that we belong to you because they see Jesus in us. Lord, I pray that as we depart from here that you would keep us safe. But help us to remember That your loving kindness is better than life itself. May we treasure the sweetness of your love. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.